If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Wearing a men's warehouse outfit makes you confident, like you could do anything, so you dance like no one is watching, even though everyone is watching. Because of the men's warehouse outfit, you interview like the job is already yours because it is. Because of the men's warehouse outfit, you golf as if the rules don't apply to you because you're too well-dressed for rules. Because of the men's warehouse outfit. At Men's Warehouse, get measured, get fitted, get hot, get confident in everything from tailored suits to underwear and all the stuff in between. Love the way you look at Men's Warehouse. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. On today's podcast, you'll hear a conversation with the biographer and literary agent Andrew Loney. Andrew's most recent book, The Mountbatten's Their Lives and Loves, tells the story of Dickie and Edwina Mountbatten, one of the most remarkable power couples in 20th century Britain. Our deputy digital editor, Eleanor Evans, met Andrew in London to find out more. Could we perhaps start by introducing the two figures who are central to your book? Yes, I mean, Dickie Mountbatten was the son of Prince Louis of Battenberg, uh, who became first sea lord. Uh, he was the uh, Dickie was the last godson of Queen Victoria. Uh, his mother was a granddaughter of Queen Victoria, so he very much grew up within royal circles. His wife Edwina was the granddaughter of a very rich banker called Sir Ernest Castle, and she came from again a very interesting background. Uh, her um, ancestors included Lord Palmerston, the Prime Minister, and uh, the philanthropist, um, the Seventh Earl of Shaftesbury. So. There have been books that have looked at both of their lives separately in the past, but your um, your book looks at their lives intertwined. Why do you think it's so important to regard their lives in this way? Well, I think that was my eureka moment, because as you say, there had been books, but funnily enough, not for about 20 or 30 years. And no one had really looked at the papers. There about 4,000 files at the University of Southampton, which have, from no one really has gone through. Wonderful letters from him to his mother and father. 
uh, a little less from her, but but he, they just kept everything. But I think by looking at it through the portrait of the marriage, and it was a very unusual marriage because though it was very loving and supportive, they both had numerous affairs. But I think it was also a public partnership. So several times at the point where they were going to get divorced, she stuck with him because she wanted to support him in his roles, particularly when he went as viceroy. So I think uh, someone described it as a very English marriage. I don't know many English marriages where there are 18 lovers in them, but it's. I think it gave a completely different perspective. And in fact, my next book's on the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, and I'm going to do exactly the same thing. But I think it created a different dynamic. And I think by being, I suppose, an intimate story of, 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 of domestic story as much as the public story, it sort of humanised them. Mm-hmm. In your book, it's clear that the Second World War is is a turning point for both of them. So I wonder if we could talk, first of all, about their lives um, and the marriage before the war and, and what they were like as people. Yes. I mean, they met uh, in when they were very young, uh, in their early 20s, and married in a, in a big ceremony, I mean, bigger than sort of any royal wedding now. 8,000 people were in the crowds uh, around Parliament Square. They married at uh, St. Margaret's, which is in the shadow of Westminster Abbey. The Prince of Wales, the future Edward VIII was the best man. The King, King George V was there. So it was a pretty glittering occasion. Mountbatten was a naval officer, a very uh, ambitious one. And most of that period up to the Second World War, he was just pursuing a naval career, both in London and in uh, Malta and Portsmouth. She really was a rather sort of um, restless soul and really didn't have enough to do. And so she quite quickly embarked on a series of affairs with people in the polo playing set, which uh, upset him greatly until he just accepted that was what was going to happen. She should just be discreet. And he himself took on several uh, lovers, including a mistress called Yola Letelier, who remained his mistress till his death in 1979. So that was the sort of conventional portrait. I mean, she's not a particularly attractive character in this this uh, period. And in some ways, you feel very sorry for him because of what he's having to go through. Uh, and then, of course, everything changes with the Second World War, and they suddenly, she finds her sense of purpose. And he is suddenly, through his mentor of Churchill, given all sorts of pretty big jobs, uh, and everything changes. And she I, discovers voluntary work, and um, I think it's the making of her. Hmm. Looking a bit at Mountbatten's naval career in the war then, um, you talk about the, the Kelly Destroyer episode. Some criticism has been, le- been levelled at him for this episode. Can we talk about that? Yes. I mean, the, the HMS Kelly, he was the first and the last captain because basically it sunk under him. Uh, it was a new uh, destroyer, uh, very latest technology, much of which he'd incorporated himself. He's very interested in naval design. But he was a terrible commander. He 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 drove the the, the ships far too fast. He betrayed uh, his uh, presence when he didn't need to by just with his signalling. He didn't always obey orders. So there were a whole series of disasters from really September 1939 right through until May 1941 when the boat is sunk in in the battle for Crete. But you know he goes over mines and they're destroyed. He has torpedo attacks which other he could have avoided. Uh, I mean many many people are killed in these episodes. And the irony is that he becomes a bit of a hero because he limps back after one of these episodes uh, and every, and, and, and he becomes this great hero, or the press make him this great hero. He's good looking, he's connected with the royals, and he's kind of forgiven, he's given the DSO. Uh, and what really shapes things is when his friend Noel Coward writes uh, In Which We Serve, the film, which is a propaganda film about the Navy, which is based on Kelly. And I think that really turns his fortunes. But uh, I think one of the reasons that uh, uh, Churchill has given all these um, 
or gives him all these staff jobs as he's determined he should never go back to sea again. He's just too dangerous. Can we talk a little more about his character during this time as well? Because it seems that he's already very conscious of how he's been being perceived. He's, he's kind of not afraid to pull on his royal connections. Um, what kind of man was he and how, how was he perceived at this time? Well, he was very ruthless uh, and in terms of his ambition. He, he was absolutely devastated when his uh, father had to resign as first sea lord because of anti-German feeling during the First World War. Uh, one of the people, the person who accepted the resignation was Churchill. And I think Churchill always felt guilty for not supporting him and was one of the reasons why I think he took him under in, as a wing later on. But Mountbatten, I think, was determined to get to the top. He didn't mind pushing people aside. He made a great play of his royal connections. It was a great joke the way he dropped them. And also because he had so much money, she was the richest heiress in the world when they married. He was able to entertain very extravagantly. He was a young, a young naval officer who would have the first sea lord to dinner, which is pretty not something that normally happens. He was well-connected. He knew of the politicians. He was very against appeasement. Uh, and so he worked with people like Eden during the uh, 1930s. So he had terrific opportunities. People were very jealous of him. But he worked hard. Um, he played hard too. I mean, and he, but he was one of those people who just... Uh, got things right. So when he learned to play polo, he would practice for hours each day to make sure that that he he really mastered it. And that was true again of his naval career. He worked very late. Uh, you know, he deserved his success. He did. He because of this German background, he didn't always play should we say, as a gentleman. So, for example, when he was uh, um, uh, responsible for one ship during the interwar period, he he, he basically was determined to win all the, the, the prizes for, for sporting achievement. Uh, and um, that wasn't sort of seen as rather, you know, he should have just been a little bit more, um, you know, left a few things for other people. Uh, he would train very secretly so people didn't know. Uh, he would, he, he didn't always play, should we say, by the rules. Uh, later on, um, people would say that if he could come through the door, he would still come through the chimney. <laughs> you mentioned there um, Dickie's uh, preference for uh, structure, for the minutiae, the getting the details and scheduling right. Um, if we look at Edwina, she was very much a different kind of character. And and you write about their honeymoon, how Dickie had plotted out the each night where they would stay. And Edwina hated that, the lack of spontaneity. Um, how do we see that kind of difference in characters playing out in their marriage? Well, I think they, they both just came to terms with it. I mean, one of the things that happened at the honeymoon is actually what they went to tour one day and there were no beds there. And so she began to accept that perhaps planning was a good idea. But she'd left led a pretty regulated childhood. Her mother died when she was nine. She was brought up by this elderly grandfather. Uh, and she really wanted to run free. And that's sort of what she did with these lovers. But she was a free spirit. I and mean, in some ways, she was a woman ahead of her time. Uh, and you, uh, you have to admire the way that she travelled. Uh, I mean, she abandoned her family, but she would travel all sorts of places. She was the first woman to go down the Burma-China Road, 800 miles, that no other woman had, tra uh, had done at that time. And, she, you know, she would live very uh, simply in tents in the desert. And, and, you know, she was a pretty extraordinary woman who wasn't going to be hidebound by convention and do exactly what she wanted. So um, she is, though one does, can't, I just condone her behaviour to her family. 
there is a there is a spirit of venture there which is quite appealing. Mm. Uh, but she was a very different kettle fish, fish absolutely to him. Um, the irony is that eventually they did sort of come together, and I think it's symbolised by gates on their property, which had her crest on one side and his on the other. So the same gates, but just facing slightly different ways. Mm-hmm. You've mentioned that um, Edwina obviously had a long line of lovers. Could we just uh, look at maybe a couple of, of the, the men who popped up in Edwina's life? Yeah, well, her, her daughter has identified 18. I can only find 16. So, uh, But they started with a, a man called the best-looking man in British society called Hugh um, uh, Molyneux, who was the um, heir to the Earl of Sefton, who was a British Army officer who then went out to be ADC in, in India to the Viceroy. Uh, that was followed by an American polo player called Lady Sanford, uh, who she probably fathered a child, had mothered a child with, which was aborted. Uh, she then moved on to a man called Mike Wardle, who worked for Beaverbrook on the Express. Again, a very dashing ex-army officer. A lot of them were in the hunting sort of polo set, socialites, but often quite intelligent uh, people. There was a Hungarian count. Um, there was a colleague of Mountbatten's in the Navy whose wife sued for divorce in the high courts. There were several black musicians, a man called Hutch, Leslie Hutchinson and the actor Paul Robeson. Uh, during the war, she had an affair with Bill Paley, who'd set up CBS. She then, at the end of the war, had an affair with Malcolm Sargent, the composer. So they're all quite varied characters and highly intelligent, interesting characters. So, um, but those are those are the ones I've I've come across. There are plenty more. I mean, her daughter used to joke that sometimes the four of them would turn up, and she would come home, and she's and the butler would say, um, "Mr. Molyneux is in the drawing room. So and so is in the library. So and so is in the study, uh, and so and so is in the in the kitchen." And she would sort of move among them. So she was she was quite a character. And Dickie obviously had his fair share of affairs as well. And from the letters that are available between the two of them. Um, what kind of understanding came to exist between them? How did they deal with these infidelities? Well, I think what really worried Dickie, he wasn't a jealous type. Uh, and because he, in a sense, had his own career, he accepted that he perhaps hadn't given his wife as much attention as she deserved. They they came to an arrangement. She wouldn't embarrass him. She would be discreet. There wouldn't be these high court actions for divorce. And there were several of those. Uh she, he was very worried about upsetting the royal family, and that was, in some ways, why, when she had the affair with Hutchinson, she felt she had to take go to court and sue the paper for libel. She actually won, um, but it was a bit of a stitch up. I think a deal was done. Uh, but as long as, in sense, the horses weren't scared, then that was fine. And he was quite discreet. She was herself very jealous. So poor old Dickie would come off on his naval leave, hoping to go off with Yola, to find that um, Edwina had whisked her off somewhere herself. So that was the way she dealt with it. It was it was it was not equal in that respect. But. Um, the, the children even accepted it, and she had a long-term affair with a man called Bunny Phillips, uh, who the children just treated, she had, they had two daughters, treated as another father. Uh, I think one of the fascinating things is that when Mountbatten had an affair during the Second World War with someone called Janie Lindsay, um, Janie Lindsay was also at that time having an affair with Bunny Phillips, who was having an affair with Edwina. So it was quite a complicated bit. Very Victorian and aristocratic approach, I think. As long as you have your heir uh, and the servants aren't too worried, you can do what you want. Mm-hmm. Yes, it does all seem rather incestuous with the names that keep um, popping up. Um, if we go back to the war then, we already talked about how the war um, helped Mountbatten's career to rise. But if we look at Edwina, she um, 
underwent some significant changes in terms of throwing herself into humanitarian work. What can you say about that? Yes, she 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 got involved with St John Ambulance and the Red Cross, and she rose very very quickly to, to basically becoming the most senior woman in the St John Ambulance. She. Uh, was highly intelligent. She was very charming. She was actually, funnily enough, well organised by then. She worked very hard. She'd learned a lot from her husband. She was very competitive with her husband and I think wanted to earn his respect, particularly after her behaviour as just this sort of ruthless socialite. And she she did. She 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 did wonderful. She was extremely brave like him. She would go through the Blitz, visiting the air raid wardens and various other things. She was very... Um, determined with politicians and used her connections to make sure that, for, for example, material and supplies were, were given to the right people. She travelled um, all over the world. She did a fundraising tour of the States with him in 1941, uh, and she just worked herself to the bone. She suddenly found a purpose and validation. So she and, and that continued right to the end of her life. She continued doing this work. Um, she'd always, I think, because of this rather unhappy childhood, she had a horrible stepmother. Uh, she was sent away to school. The, the governess that she liked was removed by this horrible stepmother. She, um, I think, had a great sympathy for the sort of underdog and, and, and for children. Ironically, not good with her own children, but very good with other people's children. Uh, and um, it was really the making of her. And he, of course, then was given these positions by Churchill. So he was made chief in combined operations, which were preparing for D-Day, but also mounting a lot of these raids against occupied Europe. Some of the raids like Dieppe and, and things like the Cockershell Heroes were his responsibility. And he was very good at that. He gained thought outside the box. He brought in scientists to, to, to you know, test soil samples and prepare things. He... Um, was they both had very strong leadership qualities. People followed them, they liked them, and, 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 and they, they could command their support. So they, they both really took off. And then, uh, having been made Chief of Combined Operations in 1941, uh, in 1943, he was made Supreme Allied Commander Southeast Asia. That was a little bit of a deal done. The Americans got Europe and the British had to, were given uh, Asia. And so he went off there. And I think one of the reasons that he was sent there was, uh, uh, to be honest, it was more a diplomatic post, a political post than a military one. But he again could get things done. So uh, he was responsible for the 14th Army, the Forgotten Army. And he went out, there's a famous phrase, he went out and said to them, you think you're forgotten, you're not forgotten. No one even knows about you, but you won't be forgotten. I will make sure that people, you know, deal with this. And he tried to get a cabinet office position focused on Asia. He improved morale by shipping out, creating magazines and radio stations and sending out supplies and giving them more leave. He dealt with the problem of the fact that there weren't often enough troops because of malaria by making sure there were enough nurses and doctors there to, to, to deal with the malaria. And also, I think, interestingly, he fought through the monsoons, which no one thought was possible. And I think those three M's really did contribute to great success. He also was very good at letting people like Slim just get on with the job. He would bring in resources necessary if they needed aircraft or troops or whatever. He would get them. But he left the, 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 the generals to do their own job. So if he comes out of um, the war with, with these uh, achievements of, of morale and, and these titles gained, these uh, positions gained, what 
role does Edwina have then in his post-war um, positions? How does she go about helping him? The end of the war is very difficult for Edwina. Uh, in 1944, uh, uh, Bunny Phillips marries a woman called Gina Werner. Again, you, it's very incestuous. It's, uh, she, in fact, has introduced Gina to Bunny. Uh, Gina is the daughter of uh, one of Mountbatten's colleagues uh, at Combined Operations. Uh, Sir Harold Werner, and Gina is the niece of um, um, Edwina's sister-in-law and and brother-in-law. So, I mean, they're all working the same sort of thing. And she's almost put on suicide watch. She takes years to recover from this, even though she's still having an affair with Malcolm Sargent at the time but uh and she goes back to supporting her husband he 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 amazingly goes back to his naval career he drops several ranks having been a basically you know the most important person in in southeast asia uh, he goes back to 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 being quite a junior officer um in the mediterranean and she's just a naval wife and that's when they get to know the um the queen and prince philip who are posted to malta in the, uh, the post-war period Mountbatten has been very instrumental actually also in bringing the royal couple together philip is his nephew philip's mother princess alice was the sister of, of his mother and uh uh, this very interesting correspondence in the Royal Archives between George VI and Mountbatten, basically plotting this courtship. So it's Mountbatten who intru- who ensures that uh, Philip is the escort when she, they visit Dartmouth in 1939, when she's 13. There's lots of lots of bringing them together. There's planning to put Philip into the Navy and then to nationalise him. He takes on the name of Mountbatten. Uh, so Mountbatten, in some, in some ways, creates the modern House of Windsor or Mountbatten Windsor. Uh, uh, he's at the stag night for Philip, uh, and they remain very close. And he becomes a great mentor to the Queen as well. She's known him ever since she was a child. Her mother couldn't stand Mountbatten because she felt he was a bit of a... Uh, he, he switched allegiances very, very quickly after the Duke of Windsor, um, who he would be very friendly with, had to abdicate. And she rather blamed him for, in a sense, forcing her father to become king. So uh, he's very, very close to royal circles. Um, she's very depressed at this period. Uh, they actually think about getting divorced. And the only thing that really saves them is the uh, invitation at the end of 1946 to go out and become the, the last viceroy. He's actually offered the job before Wavell is told that he's been sacked. Um, what can you say about um, his approach initially in, in, in India? Well, Mountbatten is reluctant to go to India. He's worried. He's determined to come first sea lord. He thinks this is going to slow down his his naval career. He also sees it's a pretty impossible, it's a poison chalice, he describes it, to go out there. You can't really win. But he has a very strong sense of duty. He feels that, you know, perhaps he can do something. Uh, He's asked by, he feels very loyal to King George VI, who sort of insists he should go out. And he goes out, really, just as on a fact-finding thing to find out what the situation is. The plan from the British, the Labour government has said, you know, we will give you your independence. We've talked about it long enough, and you're going to have it probably sometime in the summer of 1948. But when Mountbatten gets out there talking to everyone... And this is, and he's been criticised for this, but I think he had no choice. He sees that there's huge problems with communal violence. There's uh, the whole thing. The British authority is 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 dying. They haven't got the resources to, either uh, in terms of manpower, but also authority to do anything. And he realises that the only solution is to to bring forward independence. He does. It's an extraordinary thing. He goes out in March and he says, actually, in August we're going to leave. 
And he did have this. He was very impatient. He did have the sense of basically making impossible tasks and then making sure everyone rounded and followed on. But, you know, to divide... And also, of course, the, the nation had to be divided. The only solution then was not going to be any sort of federal solution, but to have this moth-eaten Pakistan that Jinnah wanted and to then leave the rest of India Hindu. And um, they have to divide everything down to the, to the you know the military bands and who gets the last trombone. I mean, it's an extraordinary thing. Share their uh, financial resources, break up the railways and all the infrastructure. And he's also got to deal with this complication of the Indian princes, who have allegiance only to the king and actually not part of the equation. And he basically bamboozles them, the Indian princes, into siding with 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 going with India, with one or two exceptions who 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 go into Pakistan. And of course, we have some of the ramifications of those problems still now with with uh, Hyderabad and, and Kashmir and elsewhere. But, I mean, he, he does a pretty effective job. He gets Nehru very much on side. I think Nehru is a wily old fox and realises that if he gets Mountbatten too on side, he'll be fine. Jinnah plays a much straighter bat and, and slightly gets eased out of the whole thing. There isn't the same personal rapport. There's certainly a very strong rapport between Edwina and Nehru. Uh, I mean, they... they there's some suggestion even that their affair began much earlier than people have suggested. The conventional view is is their um, affair, whether it's physical or not, and I think it was physical, began just before the Mountbatten's returned in the summer of 1948. But I think there's some evidence that it began even in the summer of 1947. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's a absolutely fascinating relationship, this in your book. Um, perhaps we could go on to that in, in a little while. But um, I wondered if you could um, say something on the criticisms that have been levelled at Mountbatten in terms of his naivety or perhaps ignorance of the violence that would was predicted by bringing partition, by, by bringing it forward? I mean, the debate goes on and, I mean, it's difficult. I present different points of view and I try and show, uh, I mean, it is complex and, 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 you know, you can't, it's not black and white. I think he certainly wasn't impartial. I think he, he did side with, with the Hindus more than with the Muslims. The man who came to do the boundary partition, uh, Cyril Radcliffe, was not experienced. He wasn't given enough time. He wasn't given, frankly, very good maps and information. And it was a very complicated thing to do. I think where Matt Batten you would say maybe cynically, he decided not to announce the, the boundaries until after independence so that the independence celebrations were not marred by the problems. The result of that was that, of course, the British were no longer in charge. Uh, the Indian politicians said, actually, we don't want British troops policing our borders. We'll deal with it. So I, I would blame the Indian politicians there. They could have worked together. Uh, so the result was that um, suddenly they announced these these borders. Everyone panicked in those few months after partition. Uh, the troops were there. Um, I mean, there were plenty of British troops who could have um, dealt with the situation. Uh, they didn't have the intelligence. The intelligence services had sort of gone across the Indians. But they had set up this Punjab boundary force, which to be fair, wasn't sufficient for the purposes. I think it became a bigger problem than they realised. And they were all rather, all of them were naive, not just Matt Batten. But I think he does take some responsibility and I think he felt very guilty about it. And as a result, again, his finest hour was in the uh, work uh, in terms of um, dealing with, with, with the refugees afterwards. But I think, yeah, the, the British basically didn't want to spoil the show, so they kept quiet. Mm. Uh, he had been warned by a lot of people, particularly the governors of Bengal and Punjab, about what would happen. 
uh, and he ignored them, but so did lots of other people, people on his staff and, and, and also the Indian leaders who, would be, who were also warned. So I think it's a collective responsibility rather than just Mountbatten. I mean, ironically in the book, which is quite critical of Mountbatten's private life in some ways, in terms of his public life, I'm much more sympathetic to him than many of the other books, including the official biographies. Still to come on the History Extra podcast... In some ways, it was, it's the most, it was shocking to me because it didn't really fit the picture that I had. There'd been stories that he was um, bisexual, uh, but most of these were second and third hand. And at this time, Edwina is also instrumental in, uh, in, in many cases, kind of keeping order and she's helping on a humanitarian level with refugee camps and healthcare and so on. What can you say about her activities? Yes, I mean, she really comes into her own. And she'd, she'd done this very much at the end of the war um, when he remained in Southeast Asia, uh, repatriating POWs and, and also Japanese troops. Uh, and she was did marvellous work there. And she she did the same thing absolutely in India, working quite closely with Nero. I think that's what cemented that relationship because he was doing quite a lot of that stuff himself. But she would, you know, fearlessly go out to some places which were pretty dangerous. But she organised camps, she made sure nurses were there, she uh, was a great morale booster, she would visit all sorts of people, and she had absolutely no prejudice against anything, so she would go to a leper colony and mix with people. I mean, shades of sort of Princess Diana. Uh, and they really were working as a team then, and she was very, very supportive of what he did. She, he was doing as well. So I think that was, in some ways, their finest hour. I mean, he's criticised for what happened before independence, but actually, as a result of what happened, he really came into his own. If we can go back to Nehru and um, Edwina's relationship then, because it really is a fascinating portion of your book. Well, one of the problems is the correspondence between Dickie and Edwina is still closed. The correspondence between Edwina and Nehru is also closed. So all one can go on is what has been quoted in some of the previous official books where people had access. But I think what comes clear is that it was a very profound relationship, certainly for her, I think less so for him. I mean, he was having affairs with other people at the same time too. But um, she sort of found someone completely on the same wavelength with her. Uh, it was a rather romanticised view. Um, and they, But then they wrote to each other the whole time. She, um, she would be like a lovesick sort of teenager ringing up the, the, the switchboard to talk to the Indian Prime Minister. Uh, she would go out to India after the war for a few months at the beginning of the year, and he would always come to Britain in the autumn. So they saw quite a bit of each other. But um, it, it is a very... A moving story, and and the sense that you know they they it's like a brief encounter in some ways that um they they know that they can't really spend their lives together because of their responsibilities, but they're uh, it's a very very poignant and romantic relationship, and uh, when she dies, he is allowed to, and she's buried at sea. He's allowed to send a frigate and to send a wreath, uh, which is thrown at the same time as as Mountbatten's wreath is thrown. Uh, it's. I think it's much more of a physical relationship than people imagine. They were both highly sexual people. I've got evidence from people whose uncles were um, press attaches and ambassadors who saw them sharing rooms together. So there's quite a lot of first-person testimony uh, of of the relationship, which the family, for some reason, have denied. They, they first of all said there was it was purely platonic, and then Nehru was impotent. So it couldn't have been consummated. But but I, I, my own feeling, and I think other people share this, other biographers and even members of the family, uh, Edwina's sister and people like that, that, that this was a, a proper full-scale affair and probably the most important of her life alongside the Bunny Phillips one. 
We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. You mentioned Edwina's death there in, in 1960. Um, I wonder if we could um, skip ahead a bit because it's all in the book um, to Edwina's death and Mountbatten's reaction to it. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it is an extraordinary thing, the death. She's, she's, visit, she's on a tour um, for uh, St. John Ambulance in Borneo when she uh, suddenly, literally goes to bed saying she's feeling a bit um, weak. Uh, she's due to fly to Singapore the next morning and her secretary comes in and finds that she's just died of heart failure during the night. Uh, the letters of Nero spread around her bed. She's been reading them. Uh, Dickie is told by a phone call um, in the middle of the night. He, in fact, was waiting for her to call him and and, and thought that that call was was just to, to, to give their daily chat. Uh, he's absolutely gobsmacked by this. I mean, he realises how close they've um, they've become and how important she's been in his life. And, you know, like a lot of people, you realise what you've got when you lose it. And... Um, an indication of, and I've seen the letters, 8,000 condolence letters were sent. Uh, uh, you know, I, I, amazing, amazing response and services in Western Sarabia and, and elsewhere. But he is absolutely thrown by it. Uh, he's also financially much worse off. There was 80% death duties. So off the remaining 20%, the, the, the daughters get 7.5% each, and he has 5%. So he's thinking that he, has to, he, he actually sacks some of the staff. They'd always live very extravagantly with lots and lots of staff. Uh, and he thinks of selling their house in Ireland, Classyborn. Uh, he's th- in fact, Douglas Fairbanks Jr. suggests that he should leave the Navy and he can help him with some property development in the Bahamas. So his life completely changes uh, at this point. Um, 
Um, he's very resilient and he he picks up, he resumes his naval career. He ends up being chief of the, of the, of the defense staff in 1965. Uh, he then retires and gets very involved with various charities, particularly United World Colleges. And he then also begins a series of affairs himself. So Yola is still there in the background living in France, but he has uh, quite a, um, a profound relationship with Sasha Abercorn, the daughter of Gina Phillips. So again, very incestuous, his goddaughter, a girl, a woman who's 46 years younger than he is. So she's 18 when he's in his 60s. Uh, and, uh, but he also has um, an affair with Shirley MacLaine, the actress, uh, and with uh, various other socialites, um, some of whom are still alive. And so I can't say who they are. Um, I have to wait for a new edition. But he, he certainly has a range of um, affairs. He, he's very good with young people. He remains very, very active. Uh, I think he, that he needed to drive himself, just like Edwina needed to drive herself in some ways to give uh, um, direction to their life. And I think in some ways Edwina was trying to make up for lost time. She felt she'd wasted a lot of her... 20s and 30s, uh, and she almost almost had to make reparations for the way she'd behaved. And I think that's what drove her, because she was always being told, you, you, you're going to have a heart attack if you carry on. She was only 58 when she died, but she just had to keep going. She felt that there was, uh, you know, she had so much still to do. Um, continuing a bit in the private sphere then, as you mentioned, your book looks at both the public impact of the Mountbatten's and, and their private life. Uh, a, a chapter of your book, Rumours, um, addresses new documents you found that suggest uh, revelations about Dickie. What can you say about that? Yeah, this is in some ways the most controversial chapter of the book. It's only three or 4,000 words in a book of 120,000 words, and it is called Rumours. I lay out the evidence for people to draw their own conclusions. Uh, and in some ways, it was its the most—it was shocking to me because it didn't really fit the picture that I had. There'd been stories that he was um, bisexual, uh, but most of these were second and third hand. Uh, I think what really changed things was partly I talked to a member of the royal family who confirmed that he uh, was bisexual. Uh, but I also found through um, Freedom of Information requests with the FBI that they'd opened a file on him in 1944. A woman called Lady Desize, who was a society hostess and, and gossip columnist, had come to them and said, uh, it's ridiculous that this man is, is a supreme allied commander because he likes little boys. Uh, and he's not a man who should be given these sort of jobs. So the FBI kept this file, and they opened other files as other people came forward. So a man called John Grombach, who was an intelligence officer who ran a series of informants, also had stories like this. He also had a wonderful story about how um, Anthony Eden had an affair with Duff Cooper's wife, and the story had been taken to Churchill. And then there was another character who was uh, married to the future um, uh, Secretary of State for India, Lord Lestole, and, and she also had stories. Now, of course, this isn't um, conclusive. These are just stories that were given to the FBI, which they recorded. But three different people saying exactly the same thing for no reason, you know, they didn't have any purpose to do it, does seem strange. I think what's also strange is that the FBI began to destroy the files after I started requesting them, uh, suggesting that someone, had, 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 the British re hadn't realised that there were files and asked that they would remove them. So I think there's that evidence. I also talked to quite a lot of people, uh, um, or people began to emerge, talking, I mean, for example, a guards officer, quite a senior guards officer, told me about uh, a young man that he had installed in a flat near to his um, flat in Kenderson Street. I interviewed uh, a young 
guy in his, now in his 70s, then his 20s, who'd been his lover for the last seven years. But I also, in terms of the allegations of, of, of sexual abuse, I found two boys of 16 who'd been trafficked to him in Classyborne. Now, they had no, I found them, they had no reason to make things up. What they said to me was very persuasive because they knew things that no one could have known unless you'd been to Classyborne and knew some of the characters. Um, they weren't paid. Um, for legal reasons, we haven't been able to name them, but they both have cases with, with reputable lawyers. Uh, and it's quite clear, clear that one of them was at Concora and one of them was trafficked from London. So I think it's pretty persuasive evidence um, there are stories of him being caught with guardsmen in St. James's um, Park. I think what I find so extraordinary is not just that he was doing this, but he was so open about it. People were to- talking about prostitutes being sent up to his room when he was at Shape headquarters, uh, that it was so open about it, and no, but everyone kept quiet. And one of the people I interviewed was his chauffeur or his driver from 1948, a man is now in his 90s, who suddenly at the end of the interview, we talked about other things, said... Uh, I've kept a secret for the last 70 years, which I feel I need to now share. Um, everyone knew I would be discreet because I was in the Navy. But, you know, this is the story. I, I, I was asked to take him to to show him where a male brothel was in Malta. So I think people are beginning to, to emerge and, and talk about things. Someone just popped up the other day after the book came out saying that as a naval attaché, his job was to try and find young men who, who he might... Um, Seduce, and he was well known. The lifeguards, where he was the colonel, uh, the, um, the colonel in chief, uh, that he interviewed all the young officers, and and you know he would put his hand on your knee and see what happened. So a completely different side. He lived a lie, a lie. and I think the interesting thing is, is how long the secret has has, has taken to come emerge. Mm-hmm. I wondered if we could also talk about his death because we're in the fortieth year since since his death. Um, what can you say about uh, the events of that and what that came to represent for the royal family and, and elsewhere? It's, it's exactly 40 years since he died. Uh, it's extraordinary that you know so many people are still alive. And one of the things I discovered, I mean, several interesting things, is that there have been plots against him going back to the 1960s. He'd had uh, quite heavy security and he continued to go because he loved going to Ireland. Classyborn was 12 miles south of the border. Um, but I think one of the... Ex- Extraordinary things is, is, is in the summer of 1979, he was told not to go. Advised by his police protection people here not to go. Erin Eve, of course, had just been killed a few months earlier. There'd been several kidnappings and other murders. Uh, they knew there were plots against him. So it was a little rash to go, particularly when he was there with his family. The other thing I found extraordinary was he had a military policeman who guarded him called Graham Yule. Graham Yule um, uh, assessed, did, a, did an intelligence assessment showing that he was particularly vulnerable on his boat, which was moored in the harbour and wasn't protected at night. Uh, and there had been previous attempts on the, on the boat. Uh, so that should have been something they, they dealt with. Instead of putting protection on, Graham Yule was sacked. He was forced to sign a gagging order, which only expired two years ago. Uh, and the protection was given to the guard who were far less experienced and indeed uh, um, infiltrated by the IRA. So that's one great mystery. Yule had also pointed out uh, that he'd seen a car with Belfast, Belfast number plates, which he thought belonged to the IRA, and nothing seems to have been done about that. So I think it's probably cock-up, but poor old Matt Batten really wasn't given a chance. 
I think one of the ironies of his death is that actually it appalled people, particularly this young, uh, his grandson and another boy in the boat, both teenagers were killed, that a lot of the support from North America um, stopped. Uh, it led to greater cooperation between the North and the South in terms of intelligence sharing. So it was a bit of a known goal for the um, IRA. Um, I think the other irony I discovered is that Matt Batten actually was in favour of United Ireland and had offered himself as an intermediary in any sort of peace negotiations. So uh, they may have been more effective in trying to keep him alive than in killing him. He, he was actually sort of on their side. Given these new aspects then, where, where do they sit uh, in his legacy? Well, I think his legacy, uh, I mean, clearly it, 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 it casts a different light on him as a person. I mean, there was clearly this other side to his life that no one knew about. He also had all sorts of kinky fetishes about women and riding boots and breeches and things as well. Uh, I don't think his legacy is, is changed. I think it's shown that he, what I tried to show is he did create the legend and maybe we need to stand back 40 years later and, and look, reassess things. So a lot of things he claimed he did, he didn't do. He couldn't possibly have done because he didn't have the influence to do so. I think, for example, he didn't have the power in India to really do much with people. It was almost inevitable, the, the partition and, and the pace of, of the transfer. I think in Southeast Asia, he had very little influence on what was going to happen, the resources, um, were concentrated on the Americans and on Europe uh, and you know he couldn't do much there so I describe him as a front of house man he was very good at sort of um, dressing up and looking the part and making things dignified so I think in some ways we, we, we he's not quite the great man that we we think or his, his official biographer said but you know he was a man of great achievements and gifts uh, and dedicate public service I think that the person that emerges from the book I think is a real hero is Edwina because of her humanitarian work and I don't know what your feeling is having read the book but she I think has come out from under his shadow and is now I think a, a great person in her own right That was Andrew Loney. The Mountbatten's Their Lives and Loves is available now, published by Blink. For more on royal history, head to our website, historyextra.com. The Christmas issue of BBC History magazine is also out today, with features on the fall of Roman Britain, Eleanor of Aquitaine and strange historical Christmas traditions. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Monday when I'll be speaking to Lara Maiklem about hunting for historical treasures on the River Thames. Listener.